Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Dan Nouchet, your host for episode 128, which today is another installment in the Focus Researcher's Talk. The Focus Researcher's Talk is a bank of talk by those researchers who have enjoyed particular success in publishing their work. My guests on Researcher's Talk tell us how they turn the data and the ideas into the many papers of impact which they have published. Today I'll be talking with Yuval Yerum, Professor of Computer Science at Ruhr University Bochum, Germany. Yuval's research explores the security of the interface between software and hardware. In particular, he is interested in the discrepancy between how programmers think about software execution and how software execution actually executes in modern processors. So let's begin today's episode, Yuval Yerum. On Researcher's Talk. Hi, Yuval. Welcome to the show. Hello, Daniel. Thank you for inviting me here. So, uh, Yuval, this is an interview that's not really so much about what you research, the research content, but much more about how you do that research. And I break that down into a basic three-way activity, if you like. Scientific networking or collaborating in another terminology scientific reading and scientific writing. Maybe we can just right begin there at the end with scientific writing. What if I asked you, what was a particularly difficult paper to write and why was it so difficult to write? Difficult to write? It actually ties back to the... That's a difficult one to, to actually ask. Uh, difficult to write is, is mainly when, when you have multiple interpretation of the of the data and it's hard to agree on what is the best way of presenting this so when we write we think of science as if it's uh, we are independent of the data and all the data in science is independent of what we do and in, in practice what happens is that we have the data and we interpret it and that's what we actually put in in our papers and, and data can be interpreted in multiple ways we never know which one is the right one or at least at least initially it's hard to, to when you have multiple interpretations it makes things hard yeah and I, I like this word interpretation um because this makes clear to people who are either reading science or approaching science or are up-and-coming researchers, perhaps early career researchers who are a particular audience of this podcast, makes it clear to them, just as you've said, that um, yes, science has the, um, let's say, reputation of being objective, but the procedure of, of, of arriving at any sort of certainty is an interpretive procedure and remains so even in its results. Um, I, I think, you know, we... we um mentor students and and one of the things that we see it's a very common thing that students do is that they try to write their experience rather than uh, um, 
finding the best way of presenting the results to to their future audience. And it takes a lot of practice to learn how to do this. And what is perhaps one way that you include the audience in your writing process, Yuval, when you're faced with perhaps just such a multiple interpretation paper? How is it that you somehow make it so that the message that you convey reaches other people and isn't just about what you went through as a process to figure out, oh, this must be the right interpretation? So, uh, first, you have to believe in it because you have to have something that you believe is right. Because if you do not believe in it, then we are just lying to it. And it's very easy to lie. That's one of the problems of science. So, so you have to believe that you have the right interpretation. You may be wrong. God knows I've been wrong more times than I've been right in my life. Uh, but you have to 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 believe in it and 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 try to to find to highlight what's why why you believe in it and what bring the reader with you to 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 the point that they agree with your belief and 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 is there maybe an example that you can point to a a paper that springs to mind where this process was yeah, part of your writing, this this really figuring out, I do believe in this, and this is how I'm going to make it convincing. So, um, uh, actually, I'll give you an example that um, I where I was wrong. We we, as, you know, you work as, as a team. It uh, goes back to your collaboration, point of collaboration. Work as a team, and, and there are discussions in the team. What's the best things to do, and what's the uh, what's how we should present results. And this is uh, the the examples of the uh, Spectre and Meltdown papers. And um, at the time, uh, that as a team, we had discussion on whether we want this as a single result or these two different results. And this is you know, an internal discussion, and uh, there there are arguments in both uh, in both directions. Um, so. Uh, I was the opinion that we should um, publish it as a single result. Um, the team decided against uh, my opinion, uh, and and in retrospect, um, I think that their arguments were correct. These are two. Uh, there are a lot of similarities between the two uh, the two attacks, but there are fundamental differences. That uh, that makes them different, and then should we consider this as separate the results? So, how, how how technical do you want me to go into the the argument? Well, I suppose get started, and if I feel that we're sinking deep into the details, <laughs> I so, maybe raise a hand. But, 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 so, but maybe maybe to send you off into that, what, what I am quite interested, as I said, in this activity of researching is is how, in that particular case with the Spectre um, attacks, what was it that writing was then able to do in the group, either drafts or comments to each other or uh, just anyone's own note-taking that they might have been doing? Did you see a role there? In writing, so in, in typical group, you you have ideally we have one person that uh, takes the responsibility of, of of leading the writing, and then 
everyone contributes, um, but uh, there is someone who, uh, let's say, the, the paper dictator. Eh? It's in the in they, that person usually shapes the paper. Um, in some cases, you get you get more. It's it's not there. There is no hard rule in anything. Um, how do we get back to our point? I don't remember. I lost track. Ah, sorry. Um, no, well, you wanted to actually maybe talk a bit more in detail of how it was that it was a good decision to actually make this into two results instead of just one. Um, and I just prompt that idea of writing. Yeah. So, hey, I, I really don't, it's been, I would say we are already more six years since we wrote these papers. Um, I don't remember the exact uh, details. I probably could go over the um, logs of on Git and the Git repositories to find out who wrote what. But uh, I think that the more interesting thing there is, is what's the question whether we, whether we have a single result or we have two results. And uh, the argument for for a single result is that we are exploiting uh, out of order execution uh, to to bypass security bound. The argument for um, two results is that we have different uh, boundaries there with different you know, different causes and different uh, solutions or possible solutions. So in retrospect, uh, I think that that argument was stronger as uh, so that a meltdown and all the meltdown type attacks are at the end of the are possible bugs. We can we can think of them as this bugs in the design of the processor, and they should be fixed there. So we cannot obviously do that on existing computers, but in the future we can hope that these will disappear, uh, because designs will just remove them. Spectre, on the other hand, is a problem that is inherent in the um, in the idea that the processor tries to speculate on what the program is about what the program is going to do. And there are countermeasures, there are mitigations, but they don't solve the problem. They just make it harder to exploit. The underlying problem is likely to remain. It's something that we need to deal with by uh, educating programmers and or building better compilers and educating programmers. And these are bugs that, in my view, will continue to affect us for as long as we have speculations in computers. So, yeah, go ahead. Yes, uh, uh, the in, the interpretation work involves that you've just uh, given us insight into, and which is, even for someone like me, a non-computer scientist, fairly easy to appreciate, is, is high-level interpretation, clearly. And again, if we get back to students, PhDs, early career researchers, and so on, you very often encounter people who are excellent at executing methods or at coding or are very focused on precise results. But the process that you've just told us, which turned into an excellent paper, actually involves some serious work at the level of this interpretive, if I might even say, writing level. Um, yes. Uh, well, we always have to have that. Otherwise... We end up with lab logs, and they are not interesting. It's very hard to learn from them. And what would it be that you say 
Okay. Now, if I'm going to talk about Spectre or any other paper that you happen to have written, I mean, this this is just sort of a general question. What would it be that you would sort of put your finger upon as being, okay, this is where I can tell what sort of a result I have. And this is my stance on it. And therefore, I have to uh, communicate it in this particular way. I've had other people on the show perhaps uh, mention the idea of contributions. So that part of the paper, but also the amount of time that they spend really reflecting on what the true contribution of their paper is. But that's just one possibility. I'm not sure what, what, what really draws your attention while writing. So I, I, I like to think of it as a story. We are, we are, we are story, storytellers. Mm-hmm. We need to have contribution, as you say, it's part of the, uh, the process of advancing science. We need to have a story. We need to tell, the paper, a paper tells a story. The paper tells a story about, hey, we have this problem and here is the solution to this problem. Or uh, we, uh, we question, uh, uh, is, in, uh, do we have a problem? And the answer is yes, we do. So, so we, we are telling a story. And there are some classic stories, like uh, you know, if you, if you look at literature in uh, the Greek, identified the I don't remember how many because it's not really my domain. They identified the, the classical story, story structures, the storylines, and most stories go along these lines. And the same, the same happens with with publications, with papers. Um, a dark paper, you had say. Um, there is this security issue, and the, uh, here is how information can be revealed, and uh, uh, people have tried to solve it using these approaches, but uh, it's not complete, and uh, now there is something new, and can we exploit it, or can, can a problem still exist? And most papers, most tech papers will follow this story. And you can even go to, to a lower level than, than say, hey, uh, we have this attack, and so we have this attack technique, and now we need to have a, to get the publication, we need to have some contribution that show that this attack works. So here are three uh, scenarios where this technique can be exploited to make information. So, and, and you see this, these papers as, most papers follow some template. And that's how you see how we try to see how your what you have found fits to one of these templates. And in some cases, you come up with a new template. I don't detect. And uh, speaking of of templates, the the ideas that you talked about there are, are are certainly ones that other people would also subscribe to. This idea that you're generating some sort of interest and then convincing people that the resolution arrived at and your story is, you know, satisfying in some way. So, I mean, that is certainly all there for a wide, um, broad part of, of the um, scientific community, despite the fact that the word storytelling can sometimes scare people there. <laughs> um, but but to, to think about this template and the expectations in a paper when you're writing, some of the most important parts of a paper are, let's say, well, the title above all, and for navigation or for appreciation of the scope and the actual results in a paper, very often, let's say, the paper organization. So the subtitles, if you like. So maybe just an idea or two of yours or experience of your own on writing titles and organizing papers. What would be for you some of the 
let's say perhaps do's and don'ts? Um, do's is don't fall to the trap of, of don't be boring. And I get in, in, in science, we have, we have two, two tricks that we, we need to always keep in mind. The first is we need to, to have an accurate reflection of reality. We, we are, when we say it's storytelling, it's not uh, that, that uh, we are uh, telling fables. We are telling real stories. Uh, we just try to do it. And, and, and so, so one of them, it's important to do that because otherwise, again, we, we are not doing science. Uh, the other side is that um, we we want people to know our story, to hear, to listen to our story, to, to hear it, and for that it needs to be interesting. And if you take most of the papers that we have, we give a tax name, and and the reason that we give the name is to is twofold. One one of them is to be able to to refer to this in the future, so people can refer to our work in the future, instead of just going to it by um, culture and others, and people can talk about Spectre, it's easier. That's the same reason that uh, um, cryptography added the, uh, the, the characters of uh, Alice and Bob instead of using party A and party B for communication. So giving names allows, allows people to refer to you. And the other thing, you want it to be Interesting because people tend to to listen to, to listen more when things are interesting, and we want our stories to be interesting. And we think we believe that they are important. So if if they are boring, then people will miss the uh, an important story. And maybe we can flip perspectives because, as I announced, there's basically three approaches or three different activities, in my opinion, involved in researching. And next to scientific writing, I situate scientific reading. So by flipping perspectives, I simply mean we've talked a bit about how you see things as a writer. When, it is, when you're actually reading for research purposes, how do you look, f uh, well, maybe actually a different question. How, how do these things affect you? Let's say a good title, a well-organized paper, or the opposite, poorly organized paper, a title that's boring, as you were saying. So I... I... Would you like to think that I uh, ignore or that I that the question whether the title is boring or not uh, does not affect me? Um, just like I think that advertisement does not affect me. I'm probably wrong in both. And I, I try to read papers based on a, whether they are related to what I do or not. Um, papers that are easier to read are easier to interpret, are likely to, to make more impression. It's easier to relate to them, it's easier to understand, it's easier to uh, to see what the authors try to say, it's easier to... And then and then that makes it easier for everyone to, to, to work with them. So, it's not that I will not read an important paper just because it's difficult. We read, we read because we have to read, it's, um, we have to know what's out there. But uh, good papers are much more fun, and when things are fun, I I would I would very much agree. I I think though that there's also a danger in in being a very difficult paper, or to stay with our example, a title that's hard to appreciate because 
I think it's obvious that uh, computer science, as elsewhere, computer science perhaps even more so than elsewhere, there's just a flood of work going on out mm-hmm. there. And people don't have the time. Um, even with the best intentions, people don't have the time. And, and you know, the stuff that isn't hitting expectations or isn't serving its purpose is very likely to get missed. Yeah. Look, an example, if all the negative examples of the work, the document of the title of the work, search it now. Well, a very nice paper, in my opinion, published Eurocrypt modifying and deciphering scheme after deployment. Okay, the paper the, the title describes the contents. Where I think that this title fails is that it does not describe the domain of a format preserving encryption. So, so this is a, a type of encryption that uh, the plaintext and the ciphertext have a or the plaintext has, has a specific format. And we want the ciphertext to have that same format. And I think that uh, this paper uh, is not getting the impact it should have probably get, just because when people search for the domain of format uh, presenting the encryption, this doesn't come up. It doesn't have anything related to the to the domain in the title. And you know, you you get a student to start working, and the first thing you send them is to do a literature review. And they search the major uh, uh, venues and search Google for some keywords. And if the keyword doesn't appear in the title, then it's you're less likely to be found. Thank you. That's that's a great example of just what I'm talking about. You know, with best intentions, they're actually missing things. I, I wonder in the reading because, as I, I said, this is this is something that I consider deserves its its own term, scientific reading. I wonder within the reading, your own reading practice or the tools that you might use, um, what is it that you do to ensure that even when authors aren't, let's say, doing their job, right? Um, You've just cited your own paper where the title wasn't optimal. Plenty of other authors are doing this as well. Even when the authors fail to provide just the sort of title that will provide a hit, how do you maybe sort of break through the literature or, or, or go through the literature in a way that you also get those? Because as a researcher yourself, I mean, and as a scientific reader, you're definitely keen on not missing anything. It, yes, uh, that's that's true. So for me, there are there are three reasons to, to read the paper. Uh, one is um, I'm on the program committee, I need to review papers and I read papers because they end up in my pile. And in this, I'm probably much less uh, selective in what I read because you get it in your eye, you read it from start to end, sometimes several times, and you need to evaluate it. Um, the other reason is that I just find that paper interesting. Someone, you know, calling tells me or I, for some reason, I find the paper or through a... Uh, a tweet or other reasons, and and finally is that, that, that when there are papers that are related to my my own research, then I try to keep to, keep up with what is happening. And overall, it is a very time-consuming activity, really. So, a good read of a paper takes so at the level that we do for for review takes 
a minimum of two, three hours just to read, and then you need to analyze it, write the review. And that's for easy papers. Uh, there's a, there's quite a lot of information. Uh, when we need to, when I need to keep up with what is happening in the domain, usually I, I read at a much less involved level. You want to know what is what other people are doing, um, but you know you read the introduction, you get the grasp of what they are doing. You get have a look at some other sections to see what, how they reach the results or what the results really mean. And unless you work directly with something that you need to refer to this work, you don't always go into the details. Finally, again, and, and the last thing is if, if you do something, something similar, try to reproduce results, then again, you go to, to a much higher, much de more detailed level. So it, it really depends on what you read for. Yeah, that's um, a very clear way of distinguishing the different, you know, pur purposes you might say of reading. You know, either reviewing, um, sort of satisfying curiosity, and then lastly, in your research focus. I inside the research focus, which is for especially early career researchers, perhaps the most important area of reading. You 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 make a further distinction there, as far as I understand. You're saying on the one hand. I'm broadly scanning through what's happening, state of the art, to be up to date. But then here and there, I'm picking up threads where I see something that, ah, I want to see if this really works, as they say, or these are results that I might be able to pick up and so on and bring into my current project or a future project. Um, is it fair to say then that the higher level view of this is you scan your research focus in order to find the loose threads that you need to pick up. I don't think that I do it intentionally. It just happens that, um, you know, you read something and you find, hey, uh, there is an interesting question that comes out of that. And I don't, I, I scan the literature because just need to know what is happening. If I find something, it, interesting that it will be a side effect yeah i see okay sure um one last question about reading which is interesting uh, because you you've had so much to say uh, about interpretation especially as a writer and you actually even used the word once while you were talking about how you go about reading somebody else's paper and i find that interesting because this matches up quite well with very many communication models this idea that communication is really just packaging up information from one source and letting it arrive at another source, you know, I mean, that just doesn't work and it doesn't work in science either, right? You've got somebody interpreting, in, in, interpreting material on the one end and it arrives somewhere else and it needs to be reinterpreted. <laughs> it was a, it's quite a messy process if you look at it that way. And I wonder as a, as a reader, what are the things that you have most... Well, let me rephrase that. What are the things in a paper that are drawing your attention most as an interpreter of the paper's message or results or even just its value anyway? So uh, the, we, each of us has some, has their own view of the world and their own idea of how things work. And when you read the paper, there are parts that agree with what you you believe, and there are parts that do not agree. And it is very easy to read things that you agree with, because yeah, 
I understand how it works and that's it. It is, but the, the more interesting ones are those that do not. Agree. And then you, the question is, am I wrong or are the authors, or, or is there some way to reconcile this dream? And, and, the, and that's the point that you start to question how, question the, the author's interpretations of the result that they have. And that's a very interesting point because I imagine uh, the way that you've delineated the different roles or purposes with which you read, you mentioned being a uh, program committee or just working in your own research area. So basically as a researcher or as a reviewer, to just simplify things, I wonder how that moment affects you differently in those two different roles. So if you're a reviewer and you start encountering different ideas, interpretations, or even results where they make you, well, they, they thwart your expectations, they, they, they make you pause anyway, what would that mean for you as a reviewer? Or if you're a researcher reading a published article where you think, um, okay, this is interesting work, but it again does the exact same sort of thing. It thwarts, overthrows expectations. Do, do you feel a difference there as the two different roles that you're reading in? Of course, there is a difference. Um, when when I read something, oh, it happens when I talk about you most papers do bring new new results. When I read something that I, uh, I, I that doesn't sit well with my point of view, and that there, as, as a reviewer, it now brings a, a very difficult question because you need to decide whether the authors are wrong or or they're right, and and that affects the outcome for for these authors. And ideally, in the good cases, the, the authors explain their argument well and they're convincing and then, and then I can change my view and restore sanity. Um, but if if the authors fail to do that, and, and now it, it's less, doesn't matters less whether they are right or wrong. If they fail to convince their viewers that they are right, then the paper is likely to be rejected. And uh, this is something that a luxury that we don't have when we read the paper that has already been accepted, the published result. So uh, it's it's. To, I have. Uh, if if I want to refute that paper, I have to go to a much more difficult level. Uh, it's, it's much harder to refute the published results, and there are. Published results that I believe are wrong. So, but you can't reject them, <laughs> and you can't uh, put I, them into major revision. No, I can't put. You can't put them. Yes, there, there is little I can do about them um, because oh, it it really depends. And usually, it will not be a very a major thing because if it were a major thing, people would have found out, and I wouldn't be the first one to see. But, and then it, things get corrected um but one it, it is very hard to publish a paper that says a paper a was wrong it's a result it's a result that's hard to publish because again you need to change people's view and that and, really is, is is the essence of what you've been saying so far in this interview and it's something that matches up with so much research on on science communication or communication and science better said that's we're dealing with interpretations here. We're dealing with audiences. I mean, if we were dealing with a hard facts record, then, you know, one person being able to prove that that section of the paper is wrong 
would just immediately blot it out, you know, 1984 like, but you know, that just doesn't happen, right? We've got to negotiate these things rather than just put them on or off. Um, I guess that, I guess we have to negotiate that. Um, there is also a question is what is the contribution of saying that something is wrong overall? And, and science is done by people and people are, are not always right. We, we have our own, own flaws and, and we get some things wrong. Uh, the, I think that the beauty of science is that overall we are more right than wrong or, or we tend to correct our mistakes over time. So we do fix problems. Um, otherwise, there wouldn't have been progress. Uh, the question is, what problems are worth actively being fixed actively or versus what things can we can just leave for for? science to forget because we keep forgetting we keep uh, people are much less familiar with what was written 20 years ago than they are with what's written two years ago and and what's important the, the important results survive for, for decades or centuries in other sciences the uh and so it, it as, as, a, as a as a scientist if i find the result that i disagree with I need to make the decision whether it's uh, important enough to publicly refute that, whether or to just let it uh, disappear. I think that's a very vivid way of putting things, and it's also entirely accurate. I mean, just the, the numbers even that you mentioned there, two years ago is stronger in memory than 20 years ago is. I mean, to think of the number of articles from 2003, which actually exist in the record, and how many of them are being actively read and included in the current research, I mean, just proves your point, really. And, and it proves a larger point and provides also a wonderful transition into in the last activity that involves, uh, that's, that's involved when you're doing research, and that's the scientific network, as I was calling it, um, just really briefly so that it's clear to you what I mean. It's the social side of science. It's really anyone whom you've worked with, collaborated with, corresponded with. On an even more abstract level, it's just many of these processes that you've been talking about, how the readers of science really make what the science is by citing or not citing, for example, by remembering or forgetting, if you like. So with with, with that idea in mind, maybe to bring this into a concrete situation, you, you mentioned being on program committees or being a reviewer. How, how could you perhaps tell us a bit about the the conference rotation, which is so distinctive of the computer science field? What does that contribute, in your opinion, to your research? This this the, these gatherings and this exchange that occurs at conferences. So, probably um, the the conferences provide us the the opportunity to to meet people talk with them to share it, to discuss all the, the questions that uh, that we have. Um, for example, the one that we discussed earlier, that, that if, if I disagree with the paper, I can talk with the authors and, and understand their view, if, if it's no, or, or, or maybe not. But it, uh, for me personally, I find that uh, after going to a conference, I can't take a 
more ideas for what's the next steps. I understand better where the community is. And I have uh, more, I have new collaborations that are much harder to create when, than uh, when you don't meet people. We are social animals, science and science is a social activity. Well, you know, and you see that, you know, the students, you see the difference between the way that students attend conferences and, and more senior academics, what they do. Students tend to go to the talks and academics tend to go to the, um, what's called the uh, hallway session, we just meet other people, talk with other people and, uh, and learn new stuff. That's great. I've, I've heard that as well um, from other people. So this is perhaps the hot tip out to people who are beginning or going perhaps to their first conference or second conference. There's more happening in the hallway than there is actually in the conference room. Is, it, is that, that, does that sort of capture it? Yes. Yes, definitely. And so this is a an ideas bed in a sense, and it's also a facilitator for collaboration. Is is there any maybe example you could perhaps point to where a nice paper actually grew out of a, you know not exactly a chance encounter at a conference, but through but through talking at a conference and exchanging with other people who are your peers? Um. There, there are quite a few of those. So. Uh... A large number of papers came out of of conferences or meeting people conferences. It usually it usually doesn't happen at the conference. So you you get to start talking with the people with the person, and over time things uh, happen, things mature. So uh, if we take for example uh, the um, ladder leak paper, uh, which is uh, an attack on. Um, ECBSA encryption that we exploit leakage of less than one bit. And this started uh, originally, uh, I met Diego Araya many, many years ago in in Billboard Crypto, and we started talking. And uh, still, I think it took years until we got to the point that uh, we have the idea, this idea of uh, starting to do a to see whether we, something leaks, and after that, we we needed to to find out a way of exploiting it. And, and Diego led this paper, and the result is, I think, really nice paper published in CCS Another example is uh, we just had a paper in a PLDI about um, how to create a generate code for cryptographic schemes. And uh, and this paper started uh, before COVID. So in uh, 2019, I met uh, Adam Chipala in uh, in a small in a, in a workshop called Hacks, and we discussed and we shared the idea, and we decided to work on that together. And it took this paper uh, four years to get published, to happen to, to be published. But this probably wouldn't have happened. Very differently if we did not meet. I suppose that one takeaway to just put, sort of bring it down to a point would be: you shouldn't go to conferences thinking you're attending lectures. You should go to conferences as if you were attending, let's say, more of a seminar type thing, where people mm-hmm. are in exchange with each other, where there's discussion going on. Yeah. So. <laughs> We do attend lectures. We don't attend talks there because 
you know, it's a way of an easy way of getting to understand what people are working on. But this is not the most important thing that happens there. It's the, it's the discussion about this, about papers or discussion with people or, or the talks, so you know, the chats around the uh, lunch when you get to sit with 10 other people that you have never met. Mm-hmm. And that's where it... Uh, yeah, this is great. This is exactly what I mean by this social side of science. I mean, I, I don't mean the partying and the fun and the good lunch, which all is great. <laughs> it should be there. Yeah, I'm not saying. Um, but but the fact that the science is really a spark between people where clearly there's a common interest, perhaps also, and I'm sure that you could cite examples of this in your own career, perhaps also where there's also some sort of a spark of chemistry. I mean, certain people just seem to work together better. Certain personality types seem to fit together together, <laughs> together better than others. And and I mean, I'm sure you've talked with people at conferences where, yeah, there was a big match in research, but it just didn't pan out for some reason. Look, most of these discussions uh, do not lead to, to anything. You, you talk with people, they, they have interesting work there, and, and you agree to, to work together, and then it sort of disappears over time and usually that's the majority but uh, the, the interesting ones are some of those new people sometimes you, you learn uh, who you like working with yeah yeah and that's that yeah, that's definitely the point and the point is also you know for people who are just learning to perhaps network in that way or or connect or discuss in that way that you know don't expect that it's all going to be then a week or two later, you know, a full inbox in your emails and all kinds of opportunities. It, it may just be one, but that one would never have happened without the conference and the exchange. Yeah. Um, one other aspect in scientific networking is uh, there are many, um, but clearly the area of leading groups, uh, being a supervisor, um, helping out as a last author for people who are writing some of their first papers, all of this belongs very firmly inside of the area of, of collaboration and scientific network as well. In your own experience there, what would be, let's say, some of the more successful leadership tips that you would have, or what would be also some hard lessons perhaps that you've learned as 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 leader of a group as leader of a group i i guess that um the 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 an important lesson is uh listen to your students um i i think that the in the early days i'm i i lost students because um i wanted to push my ideas and they instead it would have been probably much better to let the students do what they want um I think that my students are smarter than me these days. I realize that they're smarter than me. They are definitely more energetic and they have brilliant ideas. It's just a pleasure to work with. We we tend to like everything, we tend to, to grow into some our own our own what's the word? Sort of habits of mind? Habits, yes. Habits. We have to grow to our own habits, and, and we need some new blood all the time to to keep us to, to move us out of the comfort zone. One thing, and good students are brilliant, and then there, it's it's something that I, I let my students play with whatever they want. In and my job, my role is 
to guide them and to, to help them. At the end of the day, they need to publish and not just play. So that's where I come in. But if they have ideas, I'm happy to explore them. So you're saying that in your experience, it's it's proven more fruitful for the students and for your group as well to to allow creative space in the research, but to continue to guide in the sense of this needs to turn into a project now, um, not yeah. necessarily in an authoritative way, but uh, just in an encouraging sort of way. Sometimes you need to also be authoritative because students need to finish and they, you want them to get their degree at the end. But um, particularly in the early stages, it is extremely important to let the students explore some ideas. It's explore directions that you don't believe in. And I, I always say, tell students when they ask you, it's not everyone, but they ask me that when, when a professor tells you that something is saying, that something can be done, believe them. If they tell you that it cannot be done, try it yourself. And, and my students proved me wrong several times. So I'm, I'm really happy to work with them. It's always a pleasure. That's wonderful. I like that saying. <laughs> um, to close out, uh, Yuval, uh, one of the aims of this podcast is quite simply to help the research. So to help early career researchers, just as you've sort of been describing, feel that to, to, to work with confidence on, on what it is that they're interested in or to help just authors of all stages in their career to submit better, to help reviewers make better decisions really all down the line throughout the entire research process is, is to just provide some open talk about what needs to change. And therefore, I always ask my guests at the end, if you could pick out any one of these groups, any set of stakeholders there and give them sort of one piece of advice. If, if they did this, things would improve even just slightly. Yeah, I mean, who might you pick out and, and, and what would you say to them? Both. Yeah, particularly so young, younger researchers. People finish the PhD and they go on job talks and try to find a position and you need to show that you have a vision for life and you can, uh, you, you have an idea that will carry you your research for, for five, ten years because otherwise the committee will not pick you. And um, I know that most of them don't. I did not have I, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, so, so I, I, you know, the, 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 there is this idea of fake it till you make it, and usually it, it works. If, if you're a good researcher, you'll find something to do. So don't don't be afraid, and don't think that uh, you are the only one that don't know what you're doing. Most of us don't, and you know, we still don't really know what I'm doing. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh... Uh, Yuval, and that is Yuval Yerum, and he is professor of computer science at Ruhr University, Bochum, Germany. To, this is goodbye from me to Yuval. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Pleasure. Very good. And uh, this is goodbye to all my listeners. Bye-bye. And until next time here on this focus of the podcast, researchers talk.